This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we will be looking this morning at verses 24 through 27 and conclude our study of the Sermon on the Mount then with verses 28 and 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Everyone then who hears these words of mine And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the words of Scripture, that they are, in fact, your words, your word, and that as we come to them, Father, we come to you, because this is your word, this is your revelation that you've given to us. Father, we do not evaluate and sit in judgment on your word, but it evaluates and sits in judgment on us and on our lives and on how we think and on our attitudes And so, Father, we pray for grace to submit to your word, to hear it, and to do it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. With this paragraph, we do reach the end of our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. If we wanted to paint it in broad strokes for the purposes of remembering a very basic outline of this Sermon on the Mount. We might think of chapter 5 as pertaining to the character of a Christian, of a disciple of Christ. We might think of chapter 6 as pertaining to the devotion of a follower of Christ with its emphasis on prayer and fasting and giving from the heart out of love to the Lord, of uh, laying up treasures in heaven, of not being anxious because of our devotion to trust in the Lord. And then finally, chapter 7, dealing with some dangers to the follower of Christ that we might encounter, including the tendency to be, uh, on the one hand, judgmental and hypercritical, on the other hand, naive and gullible. Uh, the danger of not trusting God and seeking Him to provide for us. 
and then Jesus concludes this sermon with warnings, with admonitions that really drive home the point of what he is saying. And each of these has to do with something of a contrast. We saw it back several weeks ago, verses 13 and 14, of the two gates and the two ways. Uh, we enter, Jesus says, by the narrow gate. We walk a more difficult way than entering by the broad gate, walking a broad and easy way, uh, which, while it may be easy at the time, leads to destruction. The narrow gate, and those who find it, it leads to life. And then we saw the warning against being deceived by false prophets. And Jesus gives us that warning in verses 15 and following, pointing out that a tree, a good tree bears good fruit, a bad tree bears bad fruit. False prophets inevitably will become known, but it may not be evident at first and maybe not for a long time. And then Jesus draws down the warnings having to do with eternity. And really each of these does with the two options that we have before us, that Scripture sets before us, that of heaven or that of hell. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 21 through 23. In uh, Luke, as we read earlier, Luke sort of combines these two paragraphs. In Matthew, they are separate and each is elaborated on a little more. Uh, but Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. And the warning here is that we not be assured of our salvation simply because we talk religious talk or we do religious things. Those may be indications of a regenerate heart, of a redeemed soul, but they may not be. And as Jesus indicates, many will be shocked when they stand before Jesus only to discover that he doesn't have a clue who they are. In terms of salvation, of course, as the Lord, he knows who they are, but he's speaking here in terms of a saving relationship. Depart from me. I never knew you. You see, it's not those who talk about it, not those who necessarily engage in religious activity, but those who are obedient to Christ, those who do his will. And then our passage today, while put in different terms, is, is similar in the sense that it again presents before us the two options. And I think it's important before we look at the, these words to again remember why they're here. People have studied the Sermon on the Mount for a very long time. People have admired it as a wonderful ethical system. Some people have sort of set it aside saying it's not for us but for the future kingdom age. I would disagree. But what is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount isn't a nice portrait set up that we're to look at and think about and admire and say good things about. The Sermon on the Mount is certainly not rungs on a ladder by which keeping them we might gain heaven by our own efforts, although it is an exposition of the Old Testament law and serves the same purpose that it served, and that is to expose sin to make known to us our need of a Savior. And Jesus scrapes away the, the traditions, the misunderstandings, the 
conceptions that had grown up around the Sermon on the Mount, hiding its true intent to expose the law of God and all that it demands. And so now he calls us to think about who we are and how we live in relationship to this law. And as we look at verses 24 through 27, we want to see it in terms of three contrasts that Jesus uh, makes, that he puts before us. And as we look at it, first of all, there's a contrast between two men. Jesus says in verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then again in verse 26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Now, obviously, Jesus is drawing a contrast between these two men. But before we note the contrast, we do well to note the similarities. Because while these two men are different, they are also similar in a, in a very key way, a way that Jesus states here. And that is we need to see the similarity before we look at the difference. The similarity is they both hear. They listen. Everyone who hears these words of mine, verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine, verse 26. John Stott puts it well, talking about these two people. That in that regard of hearing, they are alike. And he says, professing Christians often look alike, both the genuine and the spurious, the, the false. You cannot easily tell which is which. Both appear to be building Christian lives. For Jesus is not contrasting professing Christians with non-Christians who make no profession. On the contrary, what is common to both spiritual householders is that they hear these words of mine. So do you catch that? We're not talking about the person who professes faith in Christ and the person who makes no profession. The similarity is both of these men profess. So they're both, Stock goes on to say, members of the visible Christian community. Both read the Bible. Both go to church, listen to sermons, buy Christian literature. The reason you often cannot tell the difference between them is that the deep foundations of their lives are hidden from view. The real question is not whether they hear Christ's teaching, nor even whether they respect it or believe it but whether they do what they hear. Before we talk about the difference, we do need to talk about the similarity because it goes back to the paragraph before of self-deception. The the tragedy of those who said, Lord, Lord, and said, Jesus, didn't we do this in your name? And in your name, didn't we do this and that? Is that they sincerely thought they were going to be welcomed in. And only when it was too late did they find out that was not the case. Well, again, the similarity, both seem to be professing believers who hear the word, would say they love the word, and so forth. Now, we come to the differences, because the differences are striking. One is described as wise, a wise man. And he is wise because he built his house on rock. The other 
is described as foolish. Literally, a moron, because our word for moron is the word that's used here. It's the, it's the Greek word that means foolish. Our word moron comes from it. The man is foolish. The man is not engaging his brain. The man is acting not only in a way that is mentally and intellectually deficient, but even morally so in the fact that he is accountable for the truths that he has heard. Here's the word, but he does not do it. And he is described here as building on sand. Now, we run into something of the difficulty that we ran into last time. We looked at the paragraph before this. And that is the whole question of the relationship of works, what we do, to what Jesus is saying. One man, Jesus says, hears the word and does them. The other man hears the word and does not do them. He's described as foolish. The first man is described as wise. Again, are we saved by our works? Are we saved by keeping the Sermon on the Mount or trying to? Well, of course not. The answer is always no, if we're saved by our own works. Well, what is it that Jesus is getting at here? Well, here at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, as he's been talking about our lives and our works and what we do and the way we live and the decisions we make, he's describing the transformed life. He's describing the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. Yes, the Sermon on the Mount is supernatural. Yes, it is completely contrary to our natural selves, our fallen natures. And so Jesus here is saying, not saying that we do these works and therefore we're accepted, but the person who is in Christ, the person who has been changed by the Holy Spirit and has new life in the Holy Spirit, will inevitably begin to live in this way. Not perfectly, but truly, and by God's grace, more so as we grow in him. And so in the Christian, there are works of obedience, a desire to do what Christ says. And in a person who professes faith in Christ and yet has no desire about how he, uh, to obey Christ or any concern over how he lives, we have to say, where's the fruit? Where's the evidence of salvation? Because it's not the talk, it's the obedient life that is the evidence. Remember James, James 2. James says, faith without works is dead. So the, the similarities, both men here, both would profess admiration, belief, as far as Jesus' teaching is concerned, but only one of them, the wise man, is the one who acts on it, the one who does it. So the, contrary here between, or the contrast here between two men, but then we also find here a contrast between the two foundations. Look with me again. At verse 24, the one who hears the words of Jesus and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And everyone, verse 26, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now, Jesus is saying here that the one who does what he says is like a man who built on the rock. The one who doesn't do what he says is like a man who goes out and, and provides no foundation at all, but just builds on the surface of the ground, on the sand. Now, 
what are the foundations? Well, first of all, the rock, the man who built his house on the rock. Jesus is saying here that the one who is obedient to his teaching is like a man who built his house on the rock, but he doesn't draw a direct connection between the rock and anything in particular. It's rather the man's obedience that he's commending here. But if we want to say, what could this rock be in terms of the Christian life? Well, uh, it, it really has to come back to Jesus one way or another. One, we would say, obviously, it has to be Jesus himself uh, in his, his obedience, uh, both actively to the law of God and passively in his suffering, his, his, his death, his resurrection then from the grave, uh, his passion, in other words. Um, certainly, biblically, we could make a case that the rock is Christ. You know, Paul talks about building with gold or with wood or straw, uh, but the foundation is Christ. Different kind of analogy, but certainly uh, Christ is the rock on which we stand. It's Christ who is our foundation. But in terms of this parable, we would also have to say here that the rock is Jesus' teaching, particularly our obedience to what Jesus has said. That the, the person who hears what Jesus said and acts on it, does it, is like a man who wisely digs down and builds a foundation down on the bedrock, down on uh, solid ground. Now, the man who doesn't do it, he says, is like a man who provides no foundation. He's a foolish man. He's not concerned to build a, a foundation on which the house will stand. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his, his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, talks about this man at some length. Uh, the kind of, he's the kind of person who's in a hurry. He wants results now. You see, he wants to see a building going up. He, he doesn't want to have to put up with the tedium and the con- consumption of time of actually digging down and, and laying a foundation on solid rock down deep before you start having the excitement of actually seeing something going up. Foundations are a lot like tires. How many of you get excited about buying tires for your car? Anybody? You know, it's, it's one of those things that you have to do, and they, they you know, cost money. You don't want not to do it. You want good tires, especially when the ground's wet, the road is slippery. But it's one of those things you have to have, and nobody really gets excited about Getting, getting tires, like we might get excited about a new piece of furniture or, or a new vehicle altogether. But tires are something that's necessary but mundane. Well, a foundation is much the same way. And this man decides he's going to uh, uh, skip the time and the expense uh, of, of putting in a foundation and move ahead. And therefore, he is a foolish man to do so. He is a moron. Uh, Lloyd-Jones also says he's the kind of man who will not listen to advice but thinks that his ideas are quite good enough. Apparently, uh, under the idea that someone would have told him he really does need a foundation under his house here. But no, he's not going to do that. He's going to go his own way and so forth, all of which, of course, are are characteristics of, of the fool. And so you have the two men here. You have these two foundations uh, that are or, or lack of foundation in, in the one case where he simply just builds on the sand. There's no effort to build on something solid. But then the, the, the point of the parable, the two outcomes, uh, follow the storm. And we need to look at the storm here. Verse 25, the rain fell 
Floods came, winds blew, and beat on that house. And then again, verse 27, the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against that house. Same thing. Now, we could say the two, uh, two houses were close together. They suffered the, the same uh, calamity, the same storm against them. Now, Jesus does not elaborate any particular meaning to the storm, but it's worth thinking about in terms of this parable that Jesus tells what this storm would be. In one sense, we could say that this storm would be the difficulties of life. Uh, the, the trials, afflictions that, that happen to us. Um, we know people or have heard or read of people who were living for all kinds of things that we could safely say uh, in terms of a foundation are sand, whether, whether, it's, whether it's pleasure or, or, or wealth or whatever it might be. Uh, and came to the conclusion, perhaps after difficulty, maybe illness or economic reversal or even the death of a loved one, that this really is not a foundation on which to build a life and later come to know Christ. And that could be an outcome that Jesus is talking about here with the storm. Um, When I was growing up, uh, some of the earliest Christian books I ever read were the Little Arch books. I think it was put out by Concordia Press and... uh, in St. Louis, and um, often in rhyme, kind of, you know, Dr. Seuss meets the Bible a little bit. But for the most part, very sound stories, although sometimes they would tend to embellish and elaborate uh, a little bit of detail that simply was not in the Scriptures. I can remember reading those books, and uh, one of my favorites, in fact, was the story of the man who built this house on the rock. Now, I was familiar with that because growing up in a proper Presbyterian Sunday school, we all knew the song. You know, the rains came down and the floods came up. We were well versed in this story. We knew the song. I'd read the arch book. Now, the conclusion to the story in the little arch book, however, was uh, after the man's home, the foolish man's home had collapsed because of the flood. The river next to his house had flooded. It it washed the house away. He and his family were rescued by the family of the wise man who had built this house on the rock. And uh, I I can see the picture in my mind right now. They had a dog, and the dog was lying out there, pooped out on a rock, exhausted. The whole family looked bedraggled as they were huddled now in the warm home of the of the wise man. Now, certainly someone might experience this parable in that way in this life, where God chops the blocks out from under their life, shows them that they are building on sand, and that they need to come to a saving knowledge of Christ and build their lives on Christ, on serving Christ in, in whatever calling God has for them. That is possible. But that's not really what the storm is. storm is the judgment of God. The storm is, as we read earlier in Ezekiel, God's tearing down that whitewashed wall, that illusion that all is well, when in fact it really is not. Where he sends the hail, he sends the rain, he sends the wind, and it destroys the wall. 
and the, the proclamations of peace on the part of the false prophets are shown to be just that, the proclamations of false prophets. And when we come to this parable, both biblically in terms of the whole of Scripture, but also closer in the paragraph that precedes it, we recognize that what Jesus is getting at here is not God's dealing with you in this life, but the final outcome when you stand before the judge. We saw that last time in the paragraph before where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, And then he rejects the people who say that and are only saying that, uh, saying, I never knew you, depart from me. Well, this passage is is like that one. This is not dealing with what happens in this life. This is dealing with what happens when you stand before the judge. And the judgment of God is likened to the wind blowing, the rain coming down, uh, and the flood rising and the destruction of the house. So that's the storm. It could be trials in this life, but we'd have to say that really in context, he's describing the final judgment of God. Now, one of the houses stands because it is built on the rock, the rock of Christ, the rock of Christ's word, the rock of obedience, and the wisdom of obedience to the word of Christ, which, first of all, of course, is to believe in him and being changed by him then to obey him. And the second man, uh, his, his life, it collapses, it falls, it's blown away by the judgment because it's simply built on the sand of his own opinions, the sand of his uh, going his own way. It's, uh, it's really interesting to look, uh, and if you have your Bibles open, you may want to turn over to Psalm 1. As you read this passage, and in fact, uh, the last few paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount, but especially this one, especially the conclusion. Uh, the contrast between the righteous and the wicked is one that goes way back in Scripture, uh, especially back to Psalm 1. And it's not a long psalm. I'm not going to read all of it except for the last two verses. Uh, very easy to read. Very easy to memorize, by the way. I don't want to commend it to you. If you've never memorized anything more than a verse of Scripture at a time, to maybe memorize Psalm 1, it's only six verses, and the way it's phrased and organized, it's very easy to memorize. But we come to verses 5 and 6. The man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked and so forth, like a tree planted by streams of water. The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Now, he doesn't mean they won't be there. What he means is they will not stand the evaluation, the scrutiny, the examination of the final judgment of God. They will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked certainly will be there in the judgment, but they will not stand the scrutiny of God's gaze. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And the word has much more than the idea of merely being aware of it. The idea that he approves it, that he has established it, he ordained it. He he defines what it means to be righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And this, this is exactly what Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. And not only does he say the house fell. You know, the one house stands, the other house falls. But he adds, and great was the fall of it. 
And with that, he ends the Sermon on the Mount. The last thing he does is emphasize the utter devastation that comes to the person who hears the words of God and does not do them, doesn't put them into practice, doesn't act on them. The danger is that of self-deception. The danger is that of hearing the word of the Lord and somehow coming away thinking we've done enough, that that's all that's necessary, to hear the scriptures taught or read or preached and to think well of it, to fill our heads full of knowledge, but never actually get around to acting on what God's word says. You see, the truth, one writer puts puts it this way, the truth on which Jesus is insisting is that neither an intellectual knowledge of him nor a verbal profession, though both are essential in themselves, can ever be a substitute for obedience. The question is not whether we say nice, polite, orthodox, enthusiastic things to or about Jesus, nor whether we hear his words, listening, studying, pondering, memorizing until our minds are stuffed with his teaching, but whether we do what he says, we do what we know. In other words, whether the lordship of Jesus, which we profess, is one of our life's major realities. Say, Lord, Lord. But the question is, is he your Lord? Not is he Lord. Of course he's Lord. Have you surrendered to him? Is it your concern in your daily living to apply what he says? And as we look back over the Sermon on the Mount, that is a tall order. We need to cry out to him daily for grace. One, to forgive us where we've fallen short, as we inevitably will. And two, to um, begin to do what he says. That he would, as Psalm 51 says, give us his spirit to sustain us, to make us willing, to make us obedient. Now, I want to end just by looking at verses 28 and 29. Easy to pass over these verses, but they're important. Of course they're important. They're in Scripture. But they also serve as something of a... Uh, An epilogue to the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were used to their scribes' teaching, and the scribes' teaching was derivative. That is, it was not original with them, and that's not bad. My teaching is derivative, hopefully derived from the Scriptures and derive from the church's interaction with the scriptures over the years up to the present day. Uh, I would be a fool not to preach from the scriptures, and I'd be a fool not to listen to what the church has discovered in the scriptures through various commentaries and studies uh, over the years in, in preparing what I teach to you, or you, what you teach in Sunday school or Bible study or wherever. Uh, derived teaching is not a bad thing. However, Jesus had a different tone. Remember, it was Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount who said, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Not even the prophets in the Old Testament said that. They would say, Thus says the Lord. But Jesus said, I say to you. You see, Jesus was the authority. Jesus' teaching was not derivative, but it originated with him because he was the Lord. And the people noted that authority, that unusual attention-grabbing authority in what Jesus said as one who spoke of what he knew 
firsthand. One who spoke of what he knew because it was truth from him derived from nowhere else. But what I do notice here is that it does not say that they did it. It said they simply marveled at the authority in his teaching. And dear friends, as we close the Sermon on the Mount, if all you do is marvel at the amazing teaching that's found there, if all you do is wonder at the authority with which it comes, then you've missed the point. Does your life match in some degree, in some way, hopefully more and more as the years go by, what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount? Because it is nothing less than the picture of what the Christian life should look like. And so we pray for God, for his grace, uh, that our lives would match what we find in our relationships with our wives and husbands, with our children, uh, with our families, co-workers, classmates, with one another here at church, so that we would match what we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you with thanksgiving for this portion of your word. Father, a very challenging uh, passage at several different levels. And yet, Lord, we pray that these things of which we have spoken over this past year in this study would be realities in our lives, not merely ideas in our heads, not merely noble-sounding words that we would aspire to, but by your grace, by the Spirit living in us, the reality of how we live before you, how we live before the world, how we treat one another. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.